This is part three of a series called The Cross-Shaped Life. The real question here is kind of so what? So we got a lot of people in our church that are new to Christianity or are kicking the tires of Christianity, so to speak. And the question on many of their minds is, all right, so I'm thinking about believing in Jesus or I've just decided I believe in Jesus. Now what? What do I do? Uh, do I just be a nice person? Am I supposed to sit around and wait until the pearly gates and get to the front of the line? Hopefully my, I've got a reservation. I don't know. What do I do now? between now and then. And there is a a prescribed life for us as Christians between now and that moment in heaven, all right? And it looks like character formation. We are to be uh, transformed by the Spirit of God um, where his grace meets our faith and he, through his Spirit, he works on us. He fundamentally remodels us from within to create within us the person he intended to create in the first place before the perversion of sin took hold. So your character begins to change. And the way we're talking about character in this series is through the image of the cross. And this means that your character should be shaped and defined by the cross, a cross-shaped character, not a me-shaped character or a or, or a feelings-shaped character, or a you-shaped character, or, or a shame-shaped character, not a character shaped by your past or your failures or the world, whatever, just shaped by the cross. And so we're looking at different facets of Christian character. And two weeks ago, Kale got us started by talking about what cross-shaped marriage looks like. Looks like a husband and a wife giving themselves away, selflessly loving each other into the image of Christ. Last week, I talked about masculinity. I'm surprised y'all came back after that one. I thought it would upset people. Maybe you're growing thicker skin. I didn't get one nasty email this week. I don't know if the the filters are working or what, but y'all, I appreciate your restraint because that was a tough one last week. Today's tougher, by the way, but last week was tough. And uh, and, and what we learned is that a cross-shaped masculinity looks like men who, who don't, you know, cower in the face of fear or threat. But we also don't overpower like macho men, you know? Um, We stand firm. We stand firm on the truth of God in the face of our fears. We stand firm, just like Jesus did when he took the cross. And so the way of Jesus is really something different. It's not something you pick up just by being a casual Christian on Sunday mornings. You really have to look for it and chase after it. And so today we're talking about, uh, I think, a pretty tender topic, which is forgiveness and what cross-shaped forgiveness and empathy look like, right? The reason it's tough is it's twofold, I think, at least. On the one hand, it's tough to define forgiveness in a world that defines forgiveness in a thousand different ways. Does forgiveness means, mean uh, just you, you forget? Does it mean you move on? Are you doing a favor to your wrongdoer? Like, are you morally superior when you forgive them? Like, what does forgiveness mean? Well, for Christians, it means something very particular. Forgiveness is, again, shaped by the cross, not by your own moral superiority, not by how good of a person you are. Forgiveness is shaped by the cross. And another thing that makes this so tender and tough is because there are people in this church right now sitting in this room who have been so wounded in real ways that I would dare not, you know, question or inauthenticate in any way, I I, I want to affirm you. And so 
what would it mean for me to stand up here and say, hey, just move on? There are people in this room who've been betrayed by a spouse, cheated on, stepped on, you know, neglected by a mother, abandoned by a father, raped by a boyfriend, robbed by a business associate, you know, disappointed, heartbroken by a church, by a pastor. Who would I be if I stood here and said, hey, just get over it, move on, whatever. Like that's, that can't be what forgiveness really means. But sometimes it's tough to get to what it really means because you hear through that filter. I just want you to know that's not, that's not where I'm going with, uh, with this today. Forgiveness, I think in the way of Christ, cross-shaped forgiveness is so much better. When we look at Jesus, we see a man who knew what he came to do and he knew how tough it would be for us to forgive. He knew that forgiveness would be a tall order. And we have evidence of this through his teachings, y'all. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, uh, we find this story where these really good dudes uh, in Capernaum, these really good guys have a friend, right? And apparently by context, it looks like their friend used to be able to walk. But something happened, maybe an accident at work or something happened and he lost his ability to walk. And these friends, these good dudes wanted to, wanted to get their buddy in front of Jesus because they had heard that Jesus was a healer. And so they, they put him on a mat and they carried him across town to where Jesus was hanging out one day. And they presented him to Jesus on the mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, it doesn't even say Jesus looked at the man on the mat. Jesus saw their faith and he looked at the man and, and he said, take heart, my son. Take heart, my son. All right, so imagine you're on the mat and your buddies have just brought you on a mat across town, a little humiliating, a little emasculating, whatever, but they bring you to Jesus. Your expectations are low because life has let you down. You're paralyzed. And then this healer, this renowned healer looks at you and says, take heart, my son. Like how excited would you get at that moment? Maybe this is for real. Maybe it's finally happening. He seems to like me. Take heart, my son. Yes. But then how would your feelings shift if in the next moment, with his next words, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And then he stops talking. <laughs> I mean, just be honest here. Right? I know what we're supposed to think at church, but how would you really feel? Would that not be a letdown? Like if you were the friend on the mat or if you were the friends who brought him there, wouldn't you feel slightly disappointed? <laughs> If you dragged your friend across town on a mat, carried him to Jesus, and all he did was forgive his sins. It's like, thanks, Jesus. But that's not why we're here. Thanks for this religious talk. But we came for a healing. And the, the man and his friends were not the only ones who were disappointed with that outcome. There were others in earshot of Jesus who were also disappointed, but for different reasons. They were mad at Jesus, not because he didn't heal the man, but because he forgave the man's sins, or he purported to. According to their Bible, their religion, only God could do that. Only God could forgive sins. So who does this guy think he is forgiving sin? Like, is he God? Is that what he's saying? That's actually what got Jesus in trouble. You know, that's the idea that got him hanged on the cross. And this is where they're getting that inclination and they're upset about this. Jesus knew their hearts though. And Jesus said, in response to their murmuring, he said, hey, which would be easier to say your sins are forgiven 
or to say, get up and walk. Now, I'm going to be real with you. If I was in the crowd that day, I would no doubt about it 1,000% be thinking, it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Way easier. Because if you say your sins are forgiven, you don't have to prove anything after. But if you say, get up and walk, that dude better get up and walk. And so, of course, it's easier and safer to say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus is making the opposite point. Jesus is saying, you know, it's harder to forgive someone than it is to fix them. And in the next verse, he says, just so you'll know what I'm up to, uh, he he looks at the man and says, get up and walk. And the man got, got up and walked. But the point isn't that, you know, the second thing was harder. The point actually is that forgiving the man's sins was much more of a miracle than fixing his broken body ever would be. That's a, that's a, a paradigm shift for us, right? Because we think about forgiving sins as just something every kind of pastor does. And, and it's not miraculous at all. Jesus is saying forgiving sin is always the greater miracle. Fixing a body is nothing. He made the body from scratch. Of course, you know, he could fix whatever he wants, but forgiving sin, the hard work of forgiving sin, that's the miracle. And Jesus would know this. That's that's what he came to do. Not just perform a bunch of miracles like a snake oil salesman going from one town to the next. He did miracles, but he always did them as a means to an end. He did miracles to draw a crowd and then to give that crowd the real miracle of forgiveness. Jesus knew what he came to do. He knew what the cross would mean to us before they put him on the cross. He knew that it would spell out our forgiveness. And he knew that forgiving as we've been forgiven, would be tough because forgiveness is always the greater miracle. A few years ago, um, before, you know, the church grew and got bigger and and I lost control of my schedule and now they don't even let me schedule my own things anymore because apparently I'm irresponsible or something. I don't know. Um, But uh, back in the day, I used to do a lot more counseling and and, um, premarital counseling, especially. We had a lot of couples getting ready to get married and I would counsel these couples, and I always wanted them to be, to be well aware that they had no idea who they were marrying. <laughs> like, they had no idea who this person was that they were about to promise everything to. Like, you, you don't really know who a person is because people are really good at pretending. Like, we can all pretend to be something we're not in our day-to-day lives when everything's mostly good, when things are going according to plan. We can fool everybody. But I always told our couples, you don't really know who you are or who anyone else is until it all hits the fan, until a time of great pressure comes along, stress, you know, it's a time of pain and even a time of failure. That's when a true character of a person is revealed. And so anybody can, can uh, you know, pretend to be well, well actualized or, you know, well-adjusted um, when things are fine. But, but when you're really late to something that's really important to you and you're stuck on the West Loop and everybody has forgotten to drive all of a sudden and there's a crying baby in the back seat, like that's when the real you comes out, right? That's the real you. On, I know it's not comforting to hear this, but on the most fundamental level, that's when the real you is laid bare. You know, and you're, you're 
you're finally at the airport ready to go on this family vacation and the kids are excited and you're excited, your wife's excited or your husband or whatever and, and the flight's canceled because you decided to save $37 and fly Spirit Airlines <laughs> instead of United like a human, you know, and that's that moment, that's when we meet the real you. <laughs> and it takes some time to get to know a person for that reason because only when the pressure is at its highest, when the pain is, is great, is when we're really exposed. And, and I think that's why I've always kind of been drawn to stories of, of like deathbed conversations and, uh, and deathbed confessions and things like that. You, you never really know what to believe about some of these stories. Some of them seem fabricated, like the guy that said this awesome thing is no longer around to, <laughs> to you know, back up the story or whatever. But there are so many of these that have been well documented, these stories of what people said when they were about to die. And I can think of no more stressful thing than dying. I don't know. That seems to top the list. Um, Maybe it's just my own phobias coming out, but that seems to be a really stressful thing to go through. And and I think in a lot of cases, not every case, if you've had a loved one that said some really crazy things on their, lo- on their death, I understand sometimes you're not of sound mind or the medication or whatever. So don't take this as a 100% rule. But a lot of times when that pressure is at its greatest and that fear is at its maximum, I think that can be what we say and how we treat people and the things we reflect on can be indicative of something. You know, there are some great stories about some figures like you, you know of that, that had love on their hearts when that moment came. I think that's indicative of who they really are at their core. Vince Lombardi, the great football coach, all he could think about was his wife. And the last words that he said when he looked at his wife before he died was, happy anniversary, I love you. And then he died. It's really romantic, right? I almost cried when I read that this week. Like, that's very sweet. That's a true story. Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle looked at his wife and said, you're wonderful. And then he died. And not all the stories are romantic. You know, some of them are just different. Groucho Marx, the great comedian, said as he died, this is no way to live. (laughs) I like that. Uh, Nostradamus, the night before he died, said, by sunrise, I'll no longer be here. Turns out he was right again, like <laughs> Nostradamus often was. And, and, and you, get, you get all kinds of stories. I, I once uh, knew a, uh, spoke to a, a hospice nurse who talked about this, the worst patient she ever had. And this woman was just awful to everyone. And, and she treated her family like they didn't matter. And she always was cursing and saying racially charged epithets at the minority staff members and, and just a really difficult person to take care of. And in the moments that she passed from this life to the next, she grabbed this nurse by both of her triceps, by both of the arms. And she said, help me, help me. They're coming for me. And then she died. I don't know exactly what it means, but it seems like these stories can be indicative of something else. There's no more pressure-filled moment in life than that. And if who we are in those moments is who we really are, what does it say? Well, Jesus didn't have a deathbed per se. He had the cross. The cross was his deathbed. And as he breathed his last breath, as he labored through the final moments in agony of his life on earth, he said seven things, the seven words of Jesus. It wasn't seven words, it was seven sayings, right? We call them the seven last words of Jesus, but it was seven sayings. And when we explore the things that he said from the cross, I don't think we're looking at some throwaway material that he just said to be nice at the end of his life. I think that's where we see most clearly the real heart of Jesus. 
I think that's where we see who he really was most clearly. The heart of Christ is on display when he said things like, you'll be with me, you know, in paradise to the thief on the cross next to him. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. When he said to his mother and to John, here, take care of each other, like those kinds of things were on his heart, even as he, you know, just survived this agony. But the one that I feel like might be most telling for our purposes today is found in Luke chapter 23. It's one verse, verse 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. These may be the most merciful words ever spoken. In context, it's clear that Jesus is talking about the Roman soldiers who were murdering him in real time. And he didn't forgive them in sort of a pithy religious way as if he was better than them somehow. Yeah, I forgive you, you know, peasants. He didn't, he he forgave them from the heart and he gave justification for his forgiveness of their actions. He said, they don't know. They don't know what they're doing. And I think it's impossible for us to imagine this because most of us have lived pretty comfortable lives, but if you could imagine what those men had just put Jesus through in the moments before he said these words. We know about the beatings, the floggings with the whip. We know about them tearing the flesh off of his bones. We know about them putting the crown of thorns on his head. We know about them stripping him naked, stealing his clothes, laughing at him, humiliating him, driving nails through his body and displaying him for all the world to see. And who knows what else they did to him. Roman soldiers were notorious for all kinds of heinous acts. We don't know what we don't know about what happened to Jesus, but Jesus knew it all. And he still said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I can't wrap my head around a grace like that. In these words, I think we see the core character of Jesus. He verbally forgave the villains who hanged him on the cross. I think this is a challenge for us as Christians to say the same when we feel victimized. Now, in our world today, we see things differently than Jesus, obviously. I don't know. We we live in a time where it's very popular to have categories for people And based on whatever criteria our tribe gives, we can judge the virtue of someone else based on, you know, superficial factors, even like race or politics or gender or sexual orientation. We can decide based on which tribe we're in, who's good and who's bad and leave no gray area in the middle. And and, and this is the easiest thing in the world to do because there's nothing in life more satisfying than hating the same people as your friends do and never feeling convicted to change anything about yourself. Like, This is just low-hanging philosophical fruit. And some people have decided that guys like me are the problem. Like I stand for everything that's wrong with this country in the eyes of many, white, male, uh, middle-class, straight, married, Christian, cisgendered. What am I missing? Uh, I'm sure there's more, but like there's all kinds of categories people will give. And it's not just guys like me that are hated 
in mass or in block form. Like guys like me also do the same thing to other people, right? I want you to see like, this is a universal <laughs> problem. Some people hate straight white Christian dudes and other people hate other kinds of people based on other kinds of superficial categories, right? So I've heard people cast aspersions about the liberals or, or you know, the, the protesters or the anti-vaxxers or the double maskers or, or the socialists or, you know, you just pick your poison. Like everybody's got somebody to hate because we're all being conditioned in this world of ours to think there's good guys like us, bad guys like them, uh, villains like them, and victims like us. And those lines are clearly drawn. This kind of tribalism is easy. And if you can imagine what it must have been like, the temptation Jesus' followers must have had to do that same thing to the Roman soldiers, I cannot imagine the the hatred they were tempted to feel. Mary, his mom, and John, his best friend, were right there at the cross watching them do these things to him. Like, can you imagine how Mary looked at the Roman soldiers? Mama's in the room. Can you imagine? They did that to your baby. Can you imagine the hate, the vitriol? I mean, who could blame you? I mean, I'm sure that everybody that loved Jesus in in, in his uh, time on earth and followed him, would have been tempted to feel the same way about the Roman soldiers. But Jesus in this moment goes out of his way to verbally, audibly forgive the soldiers or ask God to, ask the father to forgive the soldiers because they don't know what they're doing. And what Jesus is really doing there isn't giving the father orders. Jesus is teaching his followers something, clearly. Clearly he's teaching the rest of us something about forgiveness. Clearly, what he's trying to instill in his, uh, in his family, in his friends, his followers, is this paradigm shift. Hey, you don't get to hate based on tribe. You don't get to judge based on your victimhood and their villainy. The lines aren't so clearly drawn. They don't know what they're doing. You don't know what they're doing. You don't know what you're doing. I think that's the message that Jesus is giving us here because never before or since has any group of people been more deserving, genuinely deserving of hate and judgment and condemnation than the Roman soldiers who killed the only innocent man who ever lived. They slaughtered him. And never before or since has there been a group of people that would more deservingly receive that title of villain. But Jesus insisted that there was more to the story than we might be able to see. So what does it mean that Jesus forgave them? It means that in this world, there are villains and victims, oppressors and the oppressed. But in the eyes of God, even the villains are victims of their own sin. In the eyes of God, even oppressors are oppressed by their brokenness. This is a different way of looking at life and forgiveness. Now, think about the worst thing someone has ever done to you right now. Just think about them. Who are they? What did they do to you? What pain did they cause? What scars did they leave? You know, 
Think about them right now. In the moment, what did you say about them? In the moment when the pain or the pressure was at its peak, what did you say about them? Maybe you're like me and you never think of the right thing to say until afterward. And you're like, ah, dang it, I should have said that. What did you think to say afterward about your your betrayer, your attacker, your wrongdoer, your sinner, the one who sinned against you? What did you say? The, The truth is, Most of us say and think things about the villains in our lives that fall woefully short of the things Jesus said about the villains in his life. As hard as it is, y'all, we've got a long way to go to attain the character of Christ in this regard. In the spring of 1976, a baby boy was born in a nondescript suburb of a Midwestern town. Um... He was born to a lower, lower middle class family. His mom was a stay-at-home mom after he was born. His dad was a CPA who struggled. He made less than $1,000 a month for most of the boy's childhood. And uh, it, was a, it was a rough life, I think. Uh, a few years after he was born, the mom and dad decided uh, to have another child, and, and they had their second baby. This time it was a girl. And a few years after that, uh, the boy was old enough to go to school. So he started going to public schools, which he was glad for because life was such a mess at home. His mom and dad were always just going at each other, always fighting. It was chaos. The dad was working too much. And the mom was always up to something. It was just always toxic at home. And the boy went to school. And uh, by the time he was seven years old, his dad had filed for a divorce against his mom. And this initiated just a series of legal battles that were ugly. They were just, it was not a, it's not a good time. It was a dark time in the boy's life. The, the mom, his mom asked the, the court for the family home and for full custody of both children. She wanted to take the children away from the father, but the father fought her at every turn. And there was this protracted legal battle where at the Worst of it, the father went so far as to demand paternity tests for both children. But I can't even imagine what that's like for your dad to wonder if you're even his and to require a blood test to prove it. But it seemed extreme, I guess, to those who witnessed it until the test results came back because while the boy was his, the younger daughter was not his child. The mother had been cheating, stepping out on the father. And subsequent to the test results coming back, the court awarded the family home to the father and shared custody 50-50. And so the boy spent half his time with the mother and his sister slash half-sister. And they moved from house to house. The mother ended up marrying her lover and they moved all around. And, And then half the time, the boy would leave his mother and his sister because she didn't go to the father's house because she wasn't his according to this test, right? And so the boy went and spent time alone at the father's house. It was an incredibly tumultuous, traumatizing time. In the first five years of his elementary school, you know, classes or or grades, K through four, he went to four different elementary schools. I don't know what that's like. Four different elementary schools. His classmates now say that he was always really awkward. He never made friends. He always just kept to himself, quiet, the quiet kid in the corner, that kind of thing. 
And that pattern continued as he struggled with his schoolwork, struggled socially until he was in high school. And either his sophomore or junior year, he ended up being just another statistic, a kid from a broken home and, you know, and struggled in school, learning disabilities, by the way, but he ended up dropping out of school, moving in with his grandmother and taking a job at McDonald's. He also worked at some uh, local all-you-can-eat buffet. And around that time, he also went to technical college where he earned a certificate in food preparation. And he thought that was his life now and continued living with his grandmother. He lived with his grandmother until he was 27 years old. And he continued to take odd jobs until finally he decided to give the military a shot. And he served for eight years in the United States military, including a stint overseas in Germany where his fellow soldiers now say that he was always, again, super quiet, kept to himself never made friends, but he was always volunteering. Every time they wanted to go out on the town for some drinks, he always volunteered to be the designated driver, not because he was sober. That's the only way they would invite him. When his time in the military was over, he came back home and decided to pursue a career in security and later in in law enforcement. By that time in his life, he was living alone and you know, he actually did okay. Now, his first supervisor as a cop actually said, this guy is, uh, the, he has the worst people skills I've ever seen, is what the, the supervisor said about him. He said, every time he's in a room full of other adults, he stands, he stands to the side like a little child. That's the quote. Still, uh, throughout his years and years in the, in the um, police force. He earned all kinds of medals of honor and bravery and courage and things like that, including a time that he disarmed uh, and took down a domestic abuser who, was, who had a, a pistol. When he was 34 years old, he finally got serious about a girl for the first time in his life. And he was 34. And he, he ended up marrying her. She was a single mother, recently divorced. She was a Chinese refugee And her first husband, it was an arranged marriage, and her first husband had beaten her, and she was escaping that, and she escaped that into his arms. They got married, and they lived together a pretty under-the-radar life, relatively unknown to relatively everyone. Until one day last year, when that man was called into work, and along with three other officers on the Minneapolis police force, he was called to the scene of an alleged crime at Cup Foods. And they struggled, the four officers struggled to appropriately apprehend their suspect. And once they finally did, this man, Derek Chauvin, pressed his knee into the back of George Floyd's neck for over nine minutes pressing the life right out of him, right before our eyes. And I, I promise I'm not, if you're new here, I, I don't want you to think I'm sharing his, the details of this man's life to let anyone off the hook. I'm, I stood on this stage when no one else was here because of COVID. Last year, I stood on this stage in the aftermath of those events that I saw on YouTube. And I said, I think what I saw in that video was murder. I still believe that to be the case. My personal opinion, y'all might disagree. And I know there are people watching right now who do disagree and who wish I would 
take this, you know, conversation elsewhere and talk about the victim's character or talk about other kinds of, you know, uh, circumstances. I'm not here to do any of those things. All I'm, all I'm here to do is to confess to you, first of all, how my own tribalistic thinking has led me to feel hate for this man. I confess to you that as I watched that video and the look in his eyes, something got me about that look in his eyes, just that steely, empty look in his eyes, the hand in his pocket, his unwillingness to have mercy on this, on this man. I just, I gave in. To, to weakness brought on by my own hate. And much of our country has done the same. We have made out of one man kind of a, a, a scapegoat and a symbol of all that is wrong with America. And while I am, as a concerned citizen, I am relieved by the results of this trial this week. As a Christian, I'm wondering what else is there for us to see here? What else should we be concerned about as followers of Jesus First, because I think there's more going on here. Because if who we are under pressure, under stress, in times of testing is who we really are, this is our test. This is our time of testing. We are being laid bare every day. Will we choose to circle up in tribes? Will we choose to hate and resent and judge and condemn like the world does? Or will we love and forgive like Jesus? When Jesus said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing about these soldiers who committed the worst atrocity ever committed. He wasn't excusing their behavior. They don't know what they're doing is not an excuse, y'all. That's empathy. That's saying you don't know what it's like to be someone else, to live their life, to walk in their shoes. Jesus essentially, it sounds to me, is saying you don't know what it's like to be a Roman soldier until you've been a Roman soldier carrying out orders or whatever, like you don't know, they don't even know what they're doing. How can you know? And this is where it gets so hard for us because the easiest thing in the world for us to do is to look at someone who's committing an act of evil and say, they know exactly what they're doing. And on one superficial level, they might know they're being malevolent, but on a deeper level, do any of us know the depth and depravity of our own sin and the consequences of our sin, do any of us know? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. was not just a word of grace for the soldiers. It's a word of grace for us. Because while we would like to comfort ourselves by saying, I would never do that to Jesus. I would never have done what those soldiers did. I would never have done what so-and-so did. I would never have done what that person did to me. I would never have done what Derek Chauvin did. I would never have done what any evil person did. You don't know. You have no idea. Given another set of circumstances, given another set of parents, another set of privileges, another home you grew up in, another set 
of experiences socially, in school, romantically, etc. You have no idea who you might have become, but for the grace of God. But for the ways God has blessed you and surrounded you, cared for you, those gifts are not reason to pass judgment on others. Those things are more reason to have mercy because that could have been any of us. Any one of us. When he forgave his killers from his cross, he was doing is opening our eyes up to our own capacity for sin. Jesus taught his followers to forgive as though their lives depended on it. He said to them, as you forgive each other, you will be forgiven by God. This today is a matter of utmost urgency because whoever it is that that came to mind when I asked you to think about the person or the people who have hurt you most, who have done the most harm to you and what you've said to them or would like to say to them, your treatment of them, your forgiveness of them, your feelings toward them right now may be indicative of who you really are in the state of your soul. Because the way you extend forgiveness to someone else is indicative of the way you've received forgiveness from God. And I know it sounds like the hardest thing in the world to forgive someone that you've chosen to villainize all these years. By the grace of God, it can happen today. By the grace of God, it must happen, y'all. We must forgive as we've been forgiven. Now, if who we are under pressure is who we really, really, really are, that's bad news for all of us. But if who Jesus was under pressure is who he really, really is, that's good news for all of us. Because Jesus came to show us a better way to forgive the unforgivable, to love the unlovable, to be merciful to the merciless. And in so doing, to share his truth with the world. So who will you be today in this pressure cooker we're living in, in this time of great stress and pain? Who will you be? What character will come to the surface? I pray it's the character of Christ. And I chuckle because I know how far I have to go. Were there a straight line drawn between the perfection of God's holiness and the Roman soldiers who slaughtered Jesus, I would be much closer to the soldiers than to the holiness of God on this spectrum. In fact, I would be so close to them relative to God's holiness that it would be like looking up at a sky and, and trying to figure out which star is closer. It's just immeasurable how far I am from God's perfection, but by his grace, we can be forgiven and by his grace, we can forgive. I'm gonna lead us through a prayer. And this is not a typical, just Eric's praying while the band comes on stage or whatever. This is, this is an invitation to pray because I think there's something more at stake than most Sundays because I think all of us came in here carrying burdens of unforgiveness. And as long as we carry those around with us, 
and part of our hearts will be incapable of receiving the grace of God for ourselves. So this is a forgiveness prayer that I'll, I'll say one line at a time, and I'll pause for you to say it too. You don't have to say it out loud. You can if you want. If you're at home, say it wherever you are. Timber Grove folks, y'all can say this with me as well. But I invite you now into a time of prayer. Father, forgive me. For I don't know what I'm doing. My sin is great. But your love is greater. Take this burden of unforgiveness from me. And with my newfound freedom, Give me the strength to love others the way you first loved me and to forgive others the way you first forgave me. Lord, give me the strength to show mercy toward the sins of others as you first showed mercy toward mine. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.